0: Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst. With me to discuss the PM's new plan to tackle the asylum seeker backlog and a host of festive strike action is my colleague, political reporter, Anna Langford, alongside the former Justice Secretary and most recently, Welsh Secretary, the Tory MP, Robert Buckland. So I'm going to start with you, Ellie. Obviously, we had long-awaited plan from the, the Prime Minister this week to try and tackle the kind of channel migrant crisis and, and end this, this backlog. He said when he entered office that his, his twin purposes were trying to fix the economy and fix the damage that was done, obviously, by the mini-budget in the previous administration, and secondly, to try and deal with the small boat crisis. We had the mini-budget. We had the, the full budget, the autumn statement. And so now we're moving on to this kind of second phase. Just talk us through uh, what the PM outlined in that statement earlier this week.
1: So it's the five points that he he laid out. The two most you know, headline ones were um, ending the backlog. So he wants to clear out the, the backlog of asylum cases, but only the ones from June of this year, which is when the Nationality and Borders Bill came yeah, in. Yeah,
0: we'll come back to that later. There's a bit yeah. of a nuance around the, the numbers yeah. there. Uh,
1: sending back Albanians quicker, yep. um, because he sees it as a safe country, and he says even the PM of the country says we can just send them back. So he would like to send them all back. Um, he wants to improve the Policing in the channel, so there's a new, I've the name of it just now, but a new crime system yep. uh, linked up with the, the French to try and police the channel better. Um, and some clearer guidance for staff on how to process asylum claims, which will yep. hopefully speed up the process as well.
0: Yeah, and that's been part of the problem, isn't it? The, the, the slowness, there's a lot of cases have just been taking far, far too long to, to get sorted. Obviously, this was kind of brought into really sharp focus obviously by the horrible tragedy in the, in the channel this week Robert I just wondered what you, you made of, of the plan and I guess the importance of getting it right given that as we go into the winter unfortunately we're going to see people continue to try and make this crossing as it gets more and more dangerous
2: well I mean the, 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 the tragedy just throws into relief the uh, danger that uh, people put themselves in by using that illegal crossing we had that awful tragedy last year this yeah. time last year 29 people lost their lives we still don't know the full extent of this tragedy uh, and it it just brings starkly into relief the fact that um, on one level, people are clearly desperate, but on another level, they're being exploited as well yeah. and, or, or are part of a system of exploitation or profiteering. Um, and it's in nobody's interest this continues. I, and I've said, you know, I mean, a few years ago, we were dealing with the horror of lorries and people suffocating to death in lorries. We've dealt with that. The boats is the next manifestation, as yeah. having plugged that gap. If we sort out the boats problem, you know what next? Drones, planes? I mean, the people will still keep wanting to come. And the real question is, how do you deal? with the why rather than the symptoms right so and you know that that's why I the was the sort of push t- factors rather than the pull absolutely. factors absolutely well you know I, I look I've been uh, on the record of being rather sceptical about pull factors you know if, if we, we deny uh, asylum seekers uh, you know the ability to work uh, unless it's in limited circumstances after 12 months for, for a few of them well you know if, we, if we've got this draconian sort of anti-refugee uh, sort of culture in the UK well why are they still coming right, in yeah. big numbers and in bigger numbers So I I don't buy any of that. I think the push factors are far more relevant. I think the Prime Minister, in the announcement, was a very interesting statement about exploring safe and legal routes. I thought that was a real uh, welcome acknowledgement of common sense. Uh, You know, we'd stopped the system of application via high commissions and embassies. I think there'd been a problem, really, with with the system not necessarily being as robust as it should have been. I'm confident, you know, with, with safeguards, we could have you know some extra and better safe routes of application mm. which uh, will then really throw into relief the the question as to if you've got the availability of those routes, why Why then come via small boats? So, so I, th- I thought that was great. I thought that the prime minister's practical approach to it, you know, his his willingness to do a bilateral deal with Albania, which is not just the source of, the biggest source of illegal immigrants, it's also the biggest number of foreign national offenders in our prisons at the moment. Uh, again, was a refreshing, uh, you know, dose of of good sense and practicality. Uh, and it's interesting, number 10 have directly got involved in this. Yeah. And he's really got into the weeds, uh, uh, which I'm afraid does beg the question about what has been happening at the Home Office. Uh, it yeah. really does. Yeah. Uh, you know, I know a lot of the officials there. There's some great men and women working very hard. Uh, I don't think morale in the Home Office has been good, though. Uh, I think it's a department that has really felt under the cosh. Um, I think an injection of extra resources, extra caseworkers, uh, all that has got to be good, but it can't just be the priority list from uh, you know uh, June. It has to be the historic number of cases that means that people are waiting in in dispersal centres like Swindon for years before their applications are determined. And one of the problems has been that back in 2015, something called the Detained Fast Track Procedure was suspended. It was ruled to be unlawful. It was a, a fast track procedure that could deal with people in detention. Uh, I asked the Prime Minister this week about what plans are being made to try and revive that system, and there are urgent discussions going on with the tribunal authorities to see whether a, a fast track procedure can be brought back uh, into operation. I think you know measures like that could really help resolve some of these long-standing issues and deal with cases that frankly need to be sorted
0: yeah absolutely and yeah as as Robert pointed out then the the backlog issue there's obviously people who've been around for uh, waiting for more than a year maybe even longer the PM didn't really make a distinction between the different types of people on the backlog in his statement but number 10 later sort of clarified just talk us through that that kind of the numbers there and how that kind of works and maybe why it's of a crucial distinction as Robert mentions
1: yeah. So the distinction that number 10 gave us after Rishi's statement was that um, it'll only the backlog will only apply to the 92,600 or so that have come here and are waiting their decision since June. So right. that's when the Nationality and Borders Bill came into force. Yeah. But there's actually 143,000 yeah. currently waiting for an initial decision. So they can't work. Um, they're just, you know, sat on their hands yeah. in a frozen position. And that's, you know, that's quite a big difference between 90,000, you know, uh, just over 50,000 people still left over. Yeah. um, And we don't know really where they apply in this.
0: Yeah, Robert, you you, you talked then about uh, about, uh, people wanting to work. I think you were on guest on this podcast way back early this year when we first, I went back and listened to it and you were talking even then about changing the rules on this, you know, Labour have said that they think that anyone waiting more than six months should be allowed to work the government at the time said that it was that it was, like you say, would encourage people to come, you were strongly against that, I know that's probably still your position mm. now mm. you know, we've got a different set of people in the, in the Home Office, you've got uh, Robert Jenrick, I know you've worked with previously mm. in various departments, the Immigration Minister, do you think he's going to be more receptive to it and are you making that, that that same argument to him now well look i mean they,
2: i've been making the case about six, six months and the right to work uh for the last couple of Months now, um, I'm not seeing um, um, a receptive audience, frankly, in government to that at the moment. But I, even the opposition seem to be wavering a bit. I mean, right. Yvette Cooper was asked about it the other day and wasn't full throated in her support. I don't know why. Yeah. You know, anybody who's got a passing acquaintance with this issue and would have dealt with asylum seekers knows that we are spending billions of pounds um, asking them to do nothing, and therefore they make no contribution. You know, they could be making, they could be helping to pay their way, frankly, yeah, yeah. without a rights that then affects the merits of their application. This is an asylum application after all and God knows we need people in shortage um, areas. And the reality is a lot of people are doing irregular work anyway. They're, they've they gone under the radar. Very often we've lost track of who they are. Yeah. And they're doing irregular work on building
0: sites, in restaurants and bars, probably for, you know, well under the minimum wage. I was seeing, um, looking, looking out on the skyline behind us where we're recording, lots of building sites in London. I know I've got friends who work in the construction industry who say there's lots of people yeah. who are off, working off the books there, which is, you know, it, the argument is always that if you know if people, you know, Pay their tax. If people can work, then they can pay taxes, they pay national insurance, yeah. better better to have them have a buy-in to the country and access to benefits and stuff in that time, if it is going to take such a long time to process them.
2: Yeah, and there's no evidence. The Migrancy Advisory Committee have, have, have said repeatedly, there's no evidence to suggest that giving people limited rights to work is a pull factor. Other countries in Europe, like Denmark, are doing it. We're taking a leaf out of Denmark's book in other respects. Yeah. Uh, why not this one, you know, it's an organised hypocrisy frankly, you know, why why should we tolerate it, why don't we get real and then perhaps we'll know more about where these people are and we can track them better so that the public will have greater confidence that when they've exhausted their rights of appeal, they're deported, you know, even even refugee charities uh, such as ones in Swindon where I work with are absolutely accepting of the need for efficient and effective deportations where, uh, you know, due process has been uh, dealt with and and added Free and, and your proper determinations being made about the status of the of the asylum seeker. Um, this isn't about you know being soft. This is about being smart. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, and
0: and I, I just think it's you know it, it's an idea whose time has come. Yeah, I'm just going to come on to the politics in a second with, with Elliot. I just wanted to ask you there about you talked about safe legal routes. We had uh, Tim Lawton on the podcast a few weeks ago. He was a member of the Home Affairs Select Committee. Mm. Could hardly be described as sort of a bleeding heart liberal on these matters. But he's been pushing a lot for this idea about safe legal routes. Mm. there's an issue at the moment is that people who come across on these small boats there is no difference between you know an Iranian family Fleeing persecution and, like you say, a young Albanian man, rega- you know, whether the merits of an economic migrant or not, there is no mm. difference between their their routes to come across. And Swala Bravman, the Home Secretary, was kind of skewered by this at the, the committee earlier this last month. There aren't these safe legal routes. Do you think that is where this needs to go? Or do you think that the government is, is unwilling to do that for political uh, reasons? Tim Lawton is absolutely right about this. And he talks as well about, you know, a managed
2: sort of dub style uh, route for unaccompanied minors. He's right. You know, then you've got a much more controllable recognizable, identifiable system which will be fair and compassionate and if people go outside that and choose illegal means well it's as plain as a pike staff That you know they 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 they're not here lawfully, and you know more often than not there'll be an ulterior motive. Um, I think one of the a lot of noise at the moment about the European Convention on Human Rights and its supposed effect on all of this complete red herring. There's nothing in the Convention on Human Rights that deals specifically with refugees, by the way. Uh, And you know anybody who knows anything about it knows that the judgments of Strasbourg are are influential, but they're not binding. When when you ask people you know who say we. should withdraw from the Convention. But what cases uh, do you have a problem with? There's one that they keep on going back to, which is this um, interim order on Rwanda, yeah. which frankly, you know, I didn't agree with a particular decision made by the court. I note that, you know, I, I don't think the UK have really seriously challenged it in Strasbourg, but we've got a domestic uh, decision coming in the next few days from the High Court. Yeah. You know, any any... Uh, um, impact it has was going to happen anyway domestic yeah. law because we're going to have to wait for the decision of the high court. Yeah. Complete, There's always going to be a JR in the UK courts yeah, on this stuff complete anyway. Complete red herring. The the convention that matters is the UN Convention on Refugees, 1951. Now there is an argument there to say that the definition of a refugee does need looking at, bearing in mind seventy years have gone by we now have economic migrancy as a as a factor which wasn't really a factor in the in the 50s you know is there a case to to just look again at the definition and work out you know whether or not perhaps there should be a separate definition of economic migrant that everybody can work to internationally and that we really focus on people who are fleeing persecution from, you know, unsafe countries across the world. That's going to require international action. Rishi Sunak, in his leadership campaign, said he wanted to look at the definition of refugee. I agree with him. Uh, I think that the UK could lead some important work on on that.
1: Um, you mentioned there about, you know, I, I completely agree that often the European Convention of Human Rights is... it's completely sort of misrepresented. But a lot of your colleagues do refer back to it a lot and they were doing that long before Rwanda. Why do you think that is that they continually refer to the European Convention of Human Rights? It's kind of
0: bogeyman, isn't it? Yeah, when it comes
1: to small boats, they've been doing it for quite a long time. I
0: I, I
2: beg, I don't know. I don't know. I I mean, they need to look at the evidence. This is not... The court of Justice in Luxembourg, which is the EU court that delivers binding rulings about the interpretation of EU law. This is a court in Strasbourg with which we have a dialogue. I'll give you a great example. A few years ago, there was a challenge from some prisoner about uh, life means life sentences. You know, big, fundamental, big stuff for us. Uh, the European court uh, questioned it. The domestic courts here said, no, 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 there's no problem. We've got checks and balances mechanisms, this is entirely lawful. You know, life can mean life in some very serious cases of murder. We were vindicated, and the European Court interfered no further. We won, in effect. Uh, You know, there are plenty of examples where, through proper judicial dialogue, the United Kingdom is able to assert you know more than confidently uh, its procedures as being entirely compliant uh, with international norms such as the ones that you know exist under a convention that after all we wrote as british and a lot of british conservative lawyers wrote uh, yeah. just after the second world war now there's plenty of arguments about judicial creep and how interpretation changes but look that happens here domestically. Yeah, yeah. And you know, for politicians to say, you know, oh, these pesky courts, they just get in the way. I'm sorry, it's like sailors arguing about the sea. You're always <laughs> going to have the rule of law. You're always going to have the judicial oversight. And do you know what one of the problems? The judges often are left with the mess of poorly drafted legislation that makes no sense, and that requires sometimes litigation in order to deal with it. Now, that, that's, that's a job the Parliament needs to yeah. take responsibility for. And I do think that, uh, you know, whilst there are times when, you know, as a minister, I used to get, you know, disagreed with some of the decisions made by the courts. At the end of the day, if Parliament gets things right and simplifies and makes its intentions clear... Then the judges are left in no doubt about what Parliament's intention is, and they will follow the letter of the law as the Supreme Court has been doing on a number of notable cases in the last couple of years.
0: Ellie, mm. as we know, this has been a big issue that a lot of conservative MPs have been been pushing the government to try and, and, and tackle. You know, what do you kind of make of the, kind of the politics of it from from Rishi Sunak? There's been perhaps the party still not exactly back united again after everything that's been going on. This is clearly an issue that kind of cuts across the various different groups within the party, you know, sort of the politics of it, do you think it's kind of a, yeah, a chance for Sunak to try and stamp his authority and show what kind of Sunakism is as a, as a as an idea and what he's going to do in the kind of limited time he has left before an election?
1: I think so. You know, this is something that has been grappled with by successive governments. There's no Or easy not answer. grappled
0: with, as the case may be, but, yeah, but yeah,
1: there's no easy answer. Um, but, you know, as Robert was saying, you know, there's been a lot of problems with the Home Office and, and a lot of questions over our approach in the past, so having a bit more of a concrete plan. I think it, it definitely appeals, particularly to some in the right of the party, mm. who kind of, in a way, lent Boris Johnson, no, sorry, Rishi Sunak their vote. Yes. Uh, when it came to the, the, the leadership. Um, Including
0: the Home Secretary, Sola Bravman, who's been key on this as well. Yeah,
1: yeah, so it's, um, I think it's something that's gonna be very, very important for him electorally when the next election comes round. It's something that goes down very well with a lot of conservative voters. Yeah. And it is just an issue that has been dragging on and on and on. And if there's any kind of solution that he can magic up, I think it would bring the kind of the party unity that we really haven't seen in the yeah. last year.
0: It, it is quite a gamble, though, Robert, isn't it? You know, if it's setting yourself a target like that, you know, you do set yourself up for a nasty fall if you don't make it. And, and as and as Ellie points out, it's it's been a knotty subject that has been failed to be tackled by numerous. Uh, you know, Home Secretaries and administrations, despite saying how high up it is on their priorities and how high up is on, on some Conservative voters' priorities.
2: Well, look, I, I,
0: I admire a Prime Minister who has the guts to
2: actually set a target. I think, uh, you know, he's to be given great credit for the approach that he took this week and the tone of his remarks as well. You know, he talked about the moral dilemma at the beginning of his remarks which is i think where most people in this country are on it what infuriates the public is the lack of enforcement the lack of effectiveness yeah when a system you know clearly uh, which which in writing is supposed to work doesn't work yeah. in practice and if he can answer that and i'm confident that with the, with the announcement he's made he can then i think the public will say well fair play you know he's come up with some practical solutions to a practical problem you know, good on him. And actually, in many ways, you know, his approach does meet the zeitgeist. I think. I think the public are, you know, we've been through this sort of, you know, era of psychodrama and sort of, you know, dr- excitement and poetry. If you like, we need a bit of prose now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, and let's govern. Let's get on with the job. Let's to fix the nuts and bolts. This prime minister's a details man. Yeah. Uh, just what we need at this time. Uh, I, I think you know he's he's well placed to to help. Start to address this problem.
0: Yeah, I just want us before we move on to the the nurse strikes. You probably hear them downstairs at the, hmm. the hospital downstairs shouting away. Just that you, you mentioned that, that Sunak has taken charge himself, and obviously Robert Jenrick as the immigration minister. Is, it does feel as though a little bit as though swallow Brabman has been sort of cut out of that. I just wonder what you'd kind of made of that, and whether you thought it was whether you thought it was important. I suppose that the, the, the prime minister and, and Jenrick do this sort of without her in her input. I suppose in that sense. Well, I'm
2: sure she's signed off on all of these things. I would. So, I mean, the Home Secretary's job is a big job.
0: It's more than immigration. She's
2: got policing, she's got national security. It's a big, big job. Uh, And um, I'm sure she would welcome the uh, direct interest and involvement of the Prime Minister. I think it actually supports the Home Office and its work to see that degree of uh, attention to detail from the centre. I would feel strengthened by it. I think, you know, having an experienced... Um, former cabinet minister, as a minister of state, is again extremely helpful, uh, and Robert is somebody who you know gets the detail right and, and works assiduously hard. Um, you know, I think we've got the the the, the 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 tools in place to actually make this work. I'm much more interested now. You know, i mean been in and out of cabinet. Uh, uh, I'm less interested in the personalities and much more interested in in, in the policy yeah. and, and the f- implementation of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's I just deliverance now. I suppose isn't it's it, got to it? be delivery. And I just hope that you know, that in the Home Office, uh, officials feel that they're able to just get on with the job. Um, in a way that perhaps has not been necessarily the case in the past. Uh, but I just want to say this about, you know, people criticise Pretty Patel. I, look, I worked very well with her. Yeah, She was an extremely effective politician. She was on the ball. She worked hard. She, her work with victims was brilliant. Um, we did a lot together and changed the law together on a whole range of issues, from domestic abuse right through to sentencing and criminal justice policy and when the Home Office and the MOJ work together both departments are stronger Uh, and I think I hope that the legacy that we left was that close working relationship between officials in both departments because New Labour created this rather odd division between the two departments that I thought often got in the way of a coherent approach to uh, you know in this case criminal justice but also immigration as well because the justice and tribunal elements of the
0: immigration system are also very important. Mm. Ellie let's move on to the other big story this week the, the strikes as I said we're down below as St Thomas's Hospital where there's lots of nurses on the picket line you know it, it's it, it's a big move for the RCN the Royal College of Nursing to to go ahead with this walkout the first time in a long time you know how have we kind of ended up at this point and and where are you going to see things going I suppose you know there's lots of talk about the reopening pay and those kind of discussions but it's it's a big moment for the government to try and deal with this as as in the run up to christmas i suppose as well
1: well the big thing i think driving a lot of these strikes um is the concerns over inflation and the cost of living you know i think that's pushed a lot of people over the line when maybe they wouldn't have crossed that line in the past um but the fact is with the with the nurses you know the um their, their pay has not risen very much. I um, think they've had a real terms cut since 2010. Um, we had just had a pandemic uh, which put a huge strain on on the NHS and I think, I, I agree with them in many ways, but I think, you know, they, they deserve a, a good pay deal. Yeah. And the current, um, I believe it's 4%. It's
0: 4% was the current offer. Yeah. The, in, the independent pay review body did their calculations back in February. Obviously, things have got a lot yes. worse since then. They say that there is grounds to reopen that. They I mean, they're calling for a 19% pay rise, which the government uh, is saying is, is not really a, affordable. You know, Robert, do you think that it is, it's right for the government to reopen that? You know, they say it would be undermining the independence of this pay review mm-hmm. body, but it does feel as though... Mm-hmm. Four percent is not going to get the job done,
2: yeah. Well, look, I, I, having you know, um, as Justice Secretary, obviously worked with independent pay review bodies, particularly for prison officers. Yeah, there are times when you're going to accept their recommendations, there are sometimes difficult moments when you can't, uh, for reasons of resource, and you know, that can often create a lot of strain between the ministers and the body themselves, because the body hate having their judgment second-guessed yeah. or, you know, in any way seeming to be undermined. Of course, in that sector, the deal is prison officers aren't able to strike, yeah. um, and there are particular pressures there that that, that, that build up as a result. Um, I think there's a lot of merit in, um, you know, the, the argument that, you know, a 4% pay deal back in February it was at a very different time from where we are now, the problem in acceding to the 19% request is that that sets a really alarming precedent for pay in the public sector. Yeah, What it does, I'm afraid, in the long run, cumulatively, it will affect inflation and yeah. it will drive up prices. Um, and then you cancel out any of the benefits you get. Now, there's some arguments about whether certain parts of public sector pay do have an effect on inflation. Yeah, the
0: wage price spiral might they, not be too affected by nurses
2: There pay, is example. there is an argument, but I'm I'm afraid you've got to look at the bigger picture. And whilst I think 19% is wholly un, unachievable, um, you know, whether it's a moment for, you know, perhaps a discussion about a, a slightly different pay settlement. Uh, could well, you know, there, there is. The, I think there is merit in that. I think it's a very difficult time. Yeah. If you're a nurse or a paramedic, it's a very tough time. Yeah. You know, you're, you're exhausted. You've been through COVID. You're dealing with a backlog. I mean, we all know. You know, anybody who's you know had use of, the, of our health services, as I do, you know, with my family. You know, these people are working incredibly hard, and uh, naturally, public support and sympathy is going to be with them. There must be a middle way here. And I just hope that both sides can find it, because it is unusual for the RCN to go on strike. Yeah. Uh, it is very, very unusual. Yeah, I mean, and, we've and got to accept that, that You know, this is not a great state of affairs.
0: As you said before we, before we, we, we recorded this, you know, the, the, the RCN are different from the RMT. There's a, I think there's sort of a scene as a belligerence, unions like the RMT and and, this, and Mick Lynch as General Secretary, but the Royal College of Nursing, you feel that there has to be something very serious to get to this point. And it's not necessarily about taking away the mandate of the independent pay review body It's saying to them you can look at it again would be maybe the option to go down
2: maybe i mean that probably has time implications because obviously the body needs to take evidence Uh, it isn't a task of moments um i think it's important you know for listeners to understand of course that you know nurses pay uh will have increments added to it in terms of experience band five nurses which is one of the higher bands you know after years of experience uh you know the pay is somewhat different from the headline uh however there's no doubt that there are a lot of nurses perhaps less experienced on lower bands who aren't earning very much at all Mm. um and uh you know they're under pressure Uh, and therefore my instinctive sympathy and understanding is with them the question is what can work and it seems to me that you know any settlement that Beats inflation is probably going to be unaffordable. Yeah. You know, that's going to be what, 11% plus? Indeed. I think that, that is a difficult one. Yeah. Uh, but as you say, there's a long way between 4%
0: and 19%. And there should be a, perhaps a landing ground somewhere in the
1: middle well, I, I hope so, yeah. I really
2: do because um, we need we need our nurses to be to be there and to be to be working. I know they want to yeah because uh, you know anybody who knows it 's a vacation it 's a, a calling uh, and to do that job is is something you 've got to really want to do in your heart yeah, and that 's why I think we all admire
0: them yeah, Ellie, just zooming out slightly. this is not the only uh, bit of industrial action that 's taking place there 's a whole host of it we 've written about it multiple times on, on Pole home there 's Postal strikes, there's rail strikes, there's going to be strikes at the airports over Christmas, and there's a whole other set of PCS, GMB, prospect, all sorts of other unions, possibly teacher strikes, there have been teacher strikes up in Scotland, all this kind of stuff. You know, what's the government's kind of overall strategy to it? There was a definite change in tone from the Secretary of State, less belligerence I think probably from maybe some of the less kind of aggressive tone from some of the ministers but there hasn't seemed to be much a movement on this and how do you think the government are going to try and play this as we go through the winter and, and as these kind of strikes start to really affect people?
1: Well, um, Rishi Sunak was uh, at PMQs trying to, to pin it on, on Labour. Yeah. And that just doesn't really seem to, to land. It seems to sort of slip off. Because I think a lot of the public can realise that, you know, this isn't the Labour Party le- leading this. This is the, the unions who... Are well, f- both
0: the RCN and the RMT are not even affiliated with the yes, Labour Party.
1: So yeah, so it's just the, the union. And I think... It is very interesting how they keep on referring back to the pay review body when it comes to the RCN as yeah. if it's completely out of their hands. I think right. they're just trying to keep a lot of distance from it. Yeah. Because when they start to sort of approach it and start to engage, yeah. then people start to question whether they are responsible for right. the situation we Right, and the transport
0: secretary said that they, they, they can't be in... The, they, they can't, it has to be between the unions and right. the rail delivery companies. Yes,
1: yes. Yeah, so it's got nothing to do with us. Um, it's, all, it's all their problem. And um, <laughs> we would like to not see strikes.
2: Well, I mean, look... Uh, uh, I think government is right, actually, to, to hold the line on who actually actually are the parties to the disputes in transport. They're absolutely right. I mean, you know, I'm a little bit older. I remember beer and sandwiches. <laughs> and anybody who reads, you know, the Barbara Castle diaries, you know, for example, will, will be amazed to think that trade union disputes were being discussed you know in full cabinet you know and, and pay settlements were on the agenda you know the, the wilson's cabinet would talk about the ford pay settlement the ici pay settlement you know as if government had a direct role in, in the negotiation yeah. so that's what was done then I don't think it made for good government. I don't think it made for great labor relations, industrial relations in our country. You know, it was a time when when millions of days were being lost to strikes. And at the moment, we're feeling quite shocked that the level of days lost to strikes is the highest in about 30 years. But we're still way below where we were in the bad old days of the 60s and the 70s. So let's not get too carried away on this. Yeah. But at the same time, let's remember the lessons of that time, which is when government tries to offer beer and sandwiches, it usually ends in tears.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of tears, you know, it's, it's been a very difficult time, obviously, to take over uh, as Prime Minister and Rishi Sunak has, has had a really, you know, the in tray that he walked into in, in October was was monumental. There's a feeling we've been, Adam, my colleague Adam has written about it, the feeling that, that Richard Sienak's trying to sort of keep his head down and, and sort of get through to the start of the new year and then have a bit of a reset in the new year. They've sort of, they've avoided facing rebellions. They've sort of u turn on a few things, try and avoid having to have these big disputes within the party, you know. Do you think that's working? Do you think it's gonna, there's a chance that that, will, that line will hold? Or do you think that the party is kind of very fractured these days and is not able to sort of hold into the future?
1: Well, it's right. I think he's done a good job so far of keeping things quiet. Every journalist I know has complained about being bored, which is not <laughs> how we were feeling the rest of this entire yeah, year. Yeah, it's all relative, isn't it? It could yeah. probably be the rest of the year, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it does seem like he's managed to keep a lid on things for now. Yeah. Um, as for it hauling into the new year, you know, he's, he's not been under, what, I think he's just hit 50 days. He has, he
0: has, he's no longer the shortest. No serving. longer, yes. Um, just the shortest, as he said himself at <laughs> the other day. Yes,
1: <laughs> indeed. Um, but yeah, so he's um, not had a huge amount of policy to deal with. A few small rebellions he, he was, you know, facing on things like onshore wind and, and housing targets. He managed to nip in the bud. Yeah. He's nipped stuff in the bud with um, Gavin Williamson and concerns over as Sweller-Braverman. As but... Going into the new year, more of these issues are going to crop up. Yeah. You know, more policy areas are going to... And, you know, while the cracks may not be showing now, I think there could be more areas in the new year. Mm. Um, but overall, I think this probably does look like it's going to be a bit calmer than previous um, administrations, simply because it's not the big personality at the top.
0: Is that just wishful thinking for, for us political oh, hacks who need, you need a bit of calm in our yeah. lives, maybe? Um, um, yeah, go on.
1: But it doesn't feel as fractious right now yeah. but that could just be because everyone's keeping their, their heads down I mean Robert you're more, more in the in the fold how do you feel about well, it? Well look I
2: think I think the party having been through a very turbulent 2022 is in survival mode yeah. I think you know they never underestimate the institute of the Tory party to want to survive you know we exist to uh, govern yeah. uh, you know we, we, we the privilege of having office is huge and should not be underestimated having driven a big department of state for a number of years it's a massive privilege and you know you, you've got to be you wouldn't be in your right mind to want to surrender that, um, you know, to, to an opposition that frankly is just about learned to do opposition, but has not done any of the homework that its predecessor, you know, Tony Blair's opposition did back in the 90s. This is a Labour Party that is policy... It's not as policy-light. There's no policy. Um, uh, apart from the musings of Gordon Brown. Uh, <laughs> right for it. You know, it is pathetic that we are two years... You know, we're, we're less than two years from an election and the main opposition party really doesn't have a clue about what it wants to do, apart from... They are 20 you know, points ahead, though. Yeah, but that's because the Tories have put themselves through the mangle.
0: Yeah. And,
2: you know, in a, in a completely unnecessary, self-inflicted series of leadership elections, first of all caused by Prime Minister you know who managed to you know destroy his own opportunities by mishandling a major issue relating to to parties and covid and then a government that confused haste with efficiency yeah. which was extremely sad for all involved including me but i think with Rishino, i think everybody realizes this is a man who is more than capable of running the country doing the job properly being thorough being uh, a man of you know good principles uh, and somebody you can uh, trust uh and i think that's a great start and yes you you know will in the new year there will be personality issues even personnel issues, I'm sure. But at the same time, what I like to, and I'm, what I'm pleased to see is the government's clearing the decks and getting rid of some of the superfluous stuff that, frankly, it needn't do. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm particularly keen to make sure that this Bill of Rights uh, bites the dust and that we can have a properly, you know, tight uh, series of reforms to the Human Rights Act that I would have brought into force, that Brandon Lewis wanted to do, and that I think, you know, um, the Prime Minister, I'm sure, will be persuaded that of the merits of in the new year. It's, that's, well, that's it, might be, it might be that the
0: key advocate of that is no longer around to, to drive that through potentially. Oh, I-
2: Look, I'm not going to comment about, about that ongoing issue, but I'll sim- sim- simply say this. If you're a government that wants to concentrate on the economy, on sorting out small boats and dealing with backlogs in the health service, why on earth would you waste your time on a bill that at best does nothing and at worst opens the door to a whole plethora of amendments about rights to work, rights to benefits, rights to, you know, all. It, it just is a, it, it is, it is a legal minefield and a political disaster that can be avoided.
0: Mm. Just one last thing. Then you, there's kind of a couple of schools of thought from MPs I've spoken to. Some who think the clock is winding down and maybe the, the party is can't be put back together and perhaps needs a period in opposition. And then the other school of thought, which you're you're <laughs> shaking your head. Your school of thought is that actually, you no, know, now is the time to knuckle under, come together, and try and claw real Labour back in ahead of the next election. So, you know, you're, you're sticking around and you're going to fight for that? Is that yeah. What, is that... A period of opposition Are people mad. I mean, <laughs> talk to John Howard. John Howard, four-time
2: winner of the Australian Liberals, our sister party. He would tell you about opposition. You eat dirt. Yeah. There's nothing you can do. You can't do anything. You can't yeah, yeah. change things. You can't make the reforms or, you know, govern the country in a way that, you know, conservatives want to see our country governed. You know, this was said back in the 90s. You know, some wiseacres said, oh, Oh, yeah, you know, we'll be out for a few years and then we'll come sailing back in when the British public, you know, uh, turns its lonely eyes to the Tory party. Nonsense. 13 years. Exactly. 13 very bitter years in which, you know, Tony Blair, apart from ducking the big... Public sector reforms, which he himself admitted, you know, wreaked havoc on the constitution in a way that, uh, in some respects, is irreparable. Uh, I'm not prepared to see uh, a, a Labour government, you know, wreck the country I love, mm. uh, however well intentioned it may be. Uh, and you know, I, I want to be spared, you know, uh, the New Jerusalem <laughs> and all the nonsense that we always get when a Labour government comes to power. Uh, I want a good Tory government that's what i believe in that's why i joined the party 35 years ago and that's what i'm going to continue to fight for and if people don't have stomach for the fight we'll make way for other people like me who do
0: that's all we've got time for this week but you can read all the latest on the big stories from westminster at politicshome.com and keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven day week newsletters by clicking on the link in the top right hand corner of the website Thanks to my guests, Eleanor Langford and Robert Buckland. Our editor today was Laura Silver. And thanks to you all again for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at politicshome or email us via news at politicshome.com. And look out for the first of our festive special podcasts next week, where we'll be taking an in-depth look at 2022, the year of the three prime ministers. But for now, I've been Alan Tolhurst, and this has been The Rundown.